KMTT Kimitzion Tetzei Torah Yutet Kaf Kislev Erev Shabbat Kodesh Parshat Vayeshev You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program with your host Jonathan Snowbell. I was debating uh, this on this uh, Erev Shabbat program what uh, to discuss. Uh, this is the Erev Shabbat program before Chanukah. It would be appropriate to talk about Chanukah. Um, but we have next week as well to talk about Chanukah, and uh, for more important reasons, I decided to defer Chanukah to next week and to discuss something else. Uh, this week, on uh, my email, I received uh, an email reminding, or I get regular updates on this issue, uh, an email from the Vaad Lahatzalat Jonathan Pollard, the Committee for to Save Jonathan Pollard, uh, which uh, I believe on a yearly basis uh, tries to get uh, different uh, shuls and organizations to dedicate Parshat Vayeshev to Jonathan Pollard's situation and in that vein um, the other captives as well, uh, Gilad Shalit, Ehud Goldwasser and, uh, and, and the Chayal Regev. Um, and I believe uh, certainly on the on a program like the Arab Shabbat program, where we have flexibility to discuss different issues, um, it is uh, our obligation to do our take our little share in, uh, in 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 pushing this issue forward. Um, on the smallest level, I think we can all just uh, mention Jonathan Pollard and the and the and the Chayalim, uh, the soldiers that are in captivity in our tefillot every day, in Shema Kalena, that's where I mention them, that God should get them out of their uh, situation and bring them to the best situation possible. I'm still unfortunately praying uh, for some sort of conclusion for the, the soldiers that have been gone for, for over 25 years now. Um, how exactly to formulate these tefillot when it's possible that uh, the ones certainly from Sultan Yaakov are not alive, uh, again, as a possibility, how do we pray for somebody like that? We pray for a good conclusion. If the good conclusion is that we get their bodies back and we're able to bury them, then that's a good conclusion. And if the good conclusion is that they're alive and we can get them back, then that's a good conclusion too. We leave it open for God's uh, interpretation. We ask for the best. Um, it's not for us to determine what the best conclusion is. But uh, but it's our obligation to pray for the best conclusion. Um, there's something that I want to bring up with regard to Jonathan Pollard. And uh, here I'm actually going to ask a little bit for the listener's help because there's a short story that uh, I learned in the college. Um, not, I'm not sure what the, the, the title of the story is, and I certainly don't know the author. I believe that the word utopia does come in the, the title, but maybe some of our listeners who are listening will recognize some of the main uh, issues of the plot, because this story really speaks to me about uh, how we deal with Jonathan Pollard, how the government deals with Jonathan Pollard, the government in Israel. Um, but as our responsibility as a society, and hopefully those of you who, maybe some listeners who recognize the story, will uh, write me an email at jsnowbell, J-S-N-O-W-B-E-L-L, at gmail.com. And this is an opportunity for all the other listeners who want to send comments about the Arab Shabbat program, but don't want to have it, the comment slot on the, 
on the kmttkimitzion.org uh, webpage is viewable to everybody. So those of you who just want to send me comments for me to see and me alone to see, you can send them to that email address, jsnobel at gmail.com. In any case, um, the short story has a, has a plot which goes basically like this. Um, it's a description, the first half of the story describes a utopic society where, where, where there's happiness and the children are playing in the park and there's no violence and everybody gets along and everybody is good to each other and everybody's fine with each other. And that's the lengthy first half of the, the short story. And then there's a but. The but is extremely disturbing. The but is that in this where whatever size of the community is, if it's a community, a city, or a country, there is a room, and in that room is held a child, or and we're not exactly sure the, the age of this child, uh, who's held there in squalor, is fed gruel, and no one has any contact with this child. The child doesn't know how to speak; it just moans. Um, it's living in its filth, and it's, as I said, fed gruel. And actually people come and see this child, but nobody does anything about it because everybody knows that the society and it, in its utopic state is held together by this reality of this child being held in these conditions. And if we were to take this child out of these conditions and help the child, the, utop- the, the utopic society would fall apart. Enough said about the, the, the story, and again, I hope uh, some of the listeners, one of the listeners, will recognize this story and be able to tell me the title of this short story and the author so I can finally track it down. I've been Googling it and searching it for a couple of years now. Um, I learned it in... Uh, I studied it in a composition course in uh, Yeshiva University, so maybe those of you listeners who also took that course uh, might, might be familiar with it as well and could tell me what it is. In any case, the story in itself, in a vacuum, seems absurd. Why would a utopic society depend on one individual being held in captivity and uh, in horrid conditions? Um, But that's not the point, because in a moment we'll be able to describe that situation in our reality. But of course it puts us within, within the story itself in a dilemma. Assuming that the, the, the assumption of the story is true, that holding this child in captivity holds the utopia together and taking him out and saving him will break down the utopia, then what is the correct thing to do, of course? Because perhaps for one person to suffer for the better of the entire society, even against his will, is is legitimate. Uh, We send uh, soldiers to war and some of them die, so the rest of uh, the society will be safe. Is that not uh, dissimilar? Perhaps. Perhaps if the soldiers don't go to war, then everybody will be killed, of course. So maybe that's not a similar dilemma. Or on the other hand, we have a moral obligation to each and everybody, each and every individual. and We don't do bad things to individuals that we do for the better of society. And that's that's the dilemma that the, the short story poses for us. And 
This, of course, in my mind, brings us to our dealings with Jonathan Pollard, Gilad Chalit, um, a little bit less so the captives in Lebanon because we're not exactly going on friendly terms with the the captives in Lebanon. But let's let's pose things uh, in, 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 a, in as a clear way as possible. Besides Netanyahu and why, where he demanded Jonathan Pollard be freed and he was promised that he would be freed and then the Americans reneged on the promise, um, in general, Jonathan Pollard has been pushed under the rug by uh, the Israeli governments from the time that Jonathan Pollard, which is about 23 years now, has been in U.S. prisons until today. And I think the reason is, is simple. Uh, we have good relations with the Americans. Um, we're dependent on the Americans to a large extent for money, for military needs. Um, and therefore, and here is exactly the dilemma of our story, we are not going to risk our relationship with America, which is supporting us in a strong way, for one individual who's suffering. That that is the that is the situation. This is exactly the story. Here we have not a utopic society, but a, a society which is decent and, and perhaps dependent on the fact that we have a good relationship with America, because where would we be without American arms and where would we be without American money? And we are not going to ruin that balance to save that one person, that child, or in this case the prisoner Jonathan Pollard. And perhaps the same thing can be said about Gilad Chalit. We could say before Annapolis, though maybe in, in this situation where the captives, the captors of Gilad Chalit are not the people who are negotiating in, in Annapolis, but when it was still relevant, when, when Hamas was not ruling the Gaza Strip, we could say, we're not doing anything, we are, we are going to cut off all energy supplies, all water supplies to the Gaza Strip until we get Gilad Chalit back, and we're going to risk relations with the world, and we're going to risk future prospects of peace with the Palestinians, because we want Gilad Chalit back, or we're going to say no. It is worth it for us as a society for one person to suffer if it means that we'll be in a better state in society. Of course, the the short story, as short stories will do, will always describe things in an extreme manner, and it's a utopia, and we're not living in a utopia by any stretch of the imagination, but better and worse is what we're dealing with. To have a better situation, we will sacrifice that one person to avoid the worst situation. So the dilemma could be a dilemma into itself, but then the question is whether the dilemma is a true dilemma, and whether it's a fallacy. Whether it's a fallacy on two levels. Is it even true that if we demand these things, if we demand of the Americans, hey, we're not going forward with any peace process until we don't get Jonathan Pollard back. You're asking us to uh, let out 400 Palestinian uh, soldiers, uh, captives, uh, prisoners, terrorists, on re at regular intervals. We want one person back who's been in prison for 23 years. Just give him to us, and we'll be much more willing to do things. Will that, will that truly break the utopic society that we have? Will it break the relationship with the Americans? 
if we that's the question but there's a, but there's a bigger question not just on a practical level but our, a question towards God and a question towards our morality what does God want us to do does God want us under our responsibility to have one person suffering or we perhaps have the ability to take him out of the suffering at a cost in the long run maybe at the short run there'll be a cost but in the long run in our faith in the need to be moral people and in our faith to be doing the right things in the eyes of God do we not believe that if we do the right thing that God will take care of us on a national level especially I don't want to speak for doing the right thing on an individual level and being repaid for that that's a more complicated question and I don't think that I think there are people out there who if I say if we do the right thing God will take care of us perhaps perhaps there are people who are good who have suffered as well and I don't want to go there but on a national level I, I believe that if we do the right actions on a national level then God does take care of us and that we've only been punished historically when we did the ba- bad things uh, that, that relates to another interesting conversation which I'll say in, bra- in, 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 uh, in, in an aside uh, I had an argument with a friend in yeshiva several years ago who was a big American Jew American Zionist, but an American Jew nonetheless, and believe that the American Jewry has to remain in America in order to support Israel. Because look at all the money that's coming from the American government, maybe perhaps because of the Jewish lobby, money coming from America because Americans are supporting the Israeli economy, they're sending children here and helping them buy houses, or they're buying houses here themselves, or they're giving to State of Israel bonds. Where would, what would we do without that? And I said to him, don't you think if American Jewry picked themselves up and moved to Israel, God would figure out the finances for us? Don't you have that basic belief? And in that same vein, don't we believe that if we do the right thing morally in the eyes of God and we take care of Jonathan Pollard, which I really believe is in the hands of the Israeli government to do so, then we'll get through the impasse with the American government and things will work out? Is the American government going to start supporting Iran now because of this? Is God not going to take care of us if we do the right thing? Does God want us, for an individual human being, to be suffering because we want to hold on to our utopic society and we were not willing to risk it? That's the the question that I believe uh, is at the core of uh, our dealing with Jonathan Pollard. I think we all have an obligation to do whatever we can. Some of us are letter writers, some of us are fact senders, some of us are, 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 are answer, ask God, pray to God. And I think the more and more people put Jonathan Pollard into their tefillot every day, the more of a chance that something will move here. And the more people who are the letter writers, who write letters, and who try to move things in the ways that they know how to move things as well. At this moment in the show, uh, we'll go to our regular slot with Rav Tavori, who at the end gave me two options, but I don't know which option he chose. Um, And uh, we'll go to Rav Tavori. This week on Chavav Kislev will be the yard site of Rabbi Avram, Rabbi David, known 
throughout the Jewish literary world as the Reifid. Interestingly enough, I have a yard site list on the internet which gives me a list of many Rabbanim, many Gedolim who passed away by date. The date that I have for the Ra'avad in the month of Kislev is Chavav Kislev. On the same list, there is a date of Chavav Tevet for the same person, for the Ra'avid. Apparently, there seems to be some confusion about the date itself. And in fact, as would be natural for someone who lived so many years ago, the biographical details are not that clear. The program, the, the discussion of this Raivet today, obviously will be brief within a time limit and can only point out certain salient features about the Raivet. The more interested person is certainly recommended to read the work of Professor Yitzchak Tversky, Zichrona Levracha, called The Raivet of Paskier, and the number of articles that were written by his brother-in-law, Chaim Salavechik, Professor Chaim Salavechik, about the Raivet. The information that we'll give is basically a tamsit, a very brief synopsis of certain salient points of, of the Raivet. The exact date of his birth is not clear. He was born somewhere around the year 1120, which means that he was older than the Rambam, but he was alive at the same time as the Rambam, and they were aware of each other. He was born in Narvona. Even the place of his birth had seemed to be a question of conjecture until we found recent, fairly recently, within the context of Jewish literature, it's considered fairly recently, we found a Meiri who mentions that the Ravid was born in Narvona. His father was a Tamid Chacham, but not that much is well known about his father, but it seems that he was very wealthy. The Ravid himself was known to be wealthy, which is important to understand part of his continuing life in Pasquier. He became the son-in-law of Rebbe Avram Yitzchak, who was the author of the Eshkol. His father-in-law certainly was one of his main influences, together with a few other famous Gedolim of that time. The Ravid eventually was famous, the city that he was famous for was the Ravid of Pasquier, which I mentioned is the name of the book of Professor Tversky. He seems to have come to Pasquier approximately 1165. When he came to Pasquier, he was known building a yeshiva in Pasquier. Not only did he build the yeshiva in terms of being the Rosh Yeshiva, but he supported the yeshiva. Students came to him, and he actually supported them while they were studying in the yeshiva. Most of his, the rest of his life seems to have been in Pasquier, and he only left occasionally, once because of a feud, once for visits to other cities, perhaps they went to the Spain and received some Spanish influence. 
began to understand the difference between the Ashkenazi custom and the Sephardi customs. And then he, he returned to Pasquier. It seems that his literary work of the Hasagot, which of course are the most famous part of his work, Hasagot will have to explain exactly what the word means, were then written after he returned to Pasquier. The Raivid was multidimensional in his literary output. He was a Mefarish, a classic commentator of Gemara. In fact, the Mi'iri, who is known to have given different appellations to the scholars of his time, called the Raivid Migdole HaMefarshim. He looks at him basically as a person who is a Mefarish, who gives explanations. We have very little of the Raivid on Azmefarish, but we do have some of the Pirushim. For example, there's a Sefer Raivid on Bavakame. We have the Pirush of, of the Raivid on Bavakame, which is published by a professor, Shmuel Atlas. We have the Raivid on Avodazara, which was published originally by Professor Avram Sofer. And, of course, if we call the Rishonim and find, we'll find many, many important opinions of the Raivid as a Mefaresh found in many other Rishonim, in Shita Mukubetzas, in many, many Svarma Rishonim, Rishonim quote him, and we can see the importance of his Perushim through the Rishonim. The Raivid was also a codifier, a posek, and we see that in certain types of writing that he did. Of course, the chuvas of the Raivid, his, his responses show that people asked him questions. He responded, the Tmim Deim, the famous Sefer of the Raivid, which has very important chuvas, the Sefer that he wrote on Hilchas Nida, Baale HaNefesh, which is a classic used today for when people study Hilchas Nida. But somehow, in the yeshiva world, he is most known as a Masig. The Raivid is differentiated from other Raivids. The, the name of the Raivid, Rebavram ben Daud, Rebavram ben David, seems to be a very generic type of name because many people, there were at least two to three Raivids that were known as being the Raivid. And we have to differentiate one from the other. Today, when we use the word Raivid for Rav Av Bezdin, anybody who is a, a head of a court, of a rabbinic court, is called a Ra'avad. So obviously the name Ra'avad could have led to confusion. So the Ra'avad is referred to in yeshivas very often as the Baal Hasagos, the one who is the author of the Hasagos. Hasagos here seems to mean the one who reacted and somehow overtook the Sefer in which he's dealing. The Ravad, of course, is famous for the Hasagos on the Rambam, but he wrote Hasagos on the Rif as well. He wrote other commentaries as Hasagos, not just on the Rambam. One of the Hasidic Rebbes once used the word Hasagos and said, this might be what the Torah meant. When the Torah says, Uvo alecha kolaborecha sa'ela v'hisigucha ki tishma b'kol Hashem elokecha, the Pasuk saying the opposite of the Tochicha, the good part of the brachas that were given to Bnei Israel, it says these brachas will come to you v'hisigucha. V'hisigucha really means literally they will catch you. 
So Chassidus Shereba said that word Bisigucha is like Hasagas Haravid al Rambam. It's sort of a challenge, a challenge to improve yourself. When you have these brachas, so the brachas therefore should stimulate you to even do more. The Siguchas is the Asagas of the Raivet. The exact date of the Raivet's passing away, as I said in the very beginning, is unclear. Perhaps Chavav Kislev, perhaps Chavav Teves. But the year seems to be very well known as 1198. So that means the Raivet was close to 80 years old, depending upon what the actual date of his birth was, but he was lived to approximately 75 to 80 years old. On the day that he passed away, we have a tradition quoted from Mishonim, and Professor Tversky brings this in his book on the Ravid, that the Kohanim went to the funeral. Now, we know that a Kohen is enjoined from Tomas Meis. A Kohen is not allowed to come into contact with with a dead body, and it's chilul kuna. It would de- defile the concept of kuna. There is a famous uh, Tosfos that says, if I, Rabbeinu Tam, if I had been in the at the funeral of Rabbeinu Tam, I would have. A Cohen said, I would have gone to the funeral. I would have defiled myself because for the Gadol Hadar, he felt you were allowed to go to the funeral. The fact that the tradition is that Kohanim did so reflects the importance of the Ravid and the esteem in which he was held. The sources there quoted also say that the Kohanim, where he lived, had the custom of refusing to get the first Aliyah, and they insisted that the Ravid be called to the Torah before them. It's true that the Mishnah in Gitin says that for the sake of creating peace in the world, we have a concept that the Kohen gets the first Aliyah. Nevertheless, the Kohanim of his town said that the Ravid should be called before the Kohanim. Interestingly enough, this seems to be based on the opinion of the Rambam. Because the Rambam there in the Perush HaMishnah says that the concept of calling the Kohen first is when they're basically more or less equal. If all the people in the town are more or less equal, then you have to choose how to give out the aliyahs, you give the Kohen the first aliyah. But if one is a true Tamit Chacham, then the Tamit Chacham comes before the Kohen. The Raman bases that on the Gemara, there in Gitten, Dafnun Tesamit base. And the Raman says in a very striking comment that it's very, very poor practice to call the Kohen before a Tamit Chacham. Of course, the Rambam later in Mishnah Torah somehow mentions casually that the custom of, of Klai Yisrael is not so, and the custom of, of, of that we have even today is that we call the Kohen first, even though there's a major Tamit Chacham who is present. But nevertheless, the Rambam in the Pirusha Mishnah says that is a practice that I would condemn. I think it's a terrible practice. So it seems that the comment of the Rambam had been accepted by the Gedolim who lived in that, in that town of the Ravid, and they showed that they wanted to give the first Aliyah to the Ravid and not to the Kohanim. This is a little bit of, of deference that we can see from here the importance and the respect that the Ravid had in his lifetime, and of course, until his death. The, his influ- the influence of the Ravid throughout Je- Jewish history can be found by the various svarim that he had, the people who commented on his svarim, yeshivas, 
those that find the Ravid in many, many Svarim, the list that Professor Salavechik printed in his article about the Ravid, where he mentioned, he quotes hundreds of cases where the Ravid in quoted by Rishonim were found in other sources, which would we would have to learn carefully in order to correlate them with what it says in the Mishnah Torah, is an example of fine scholarship to see where the Ravid really is important, not just for the Hasagos of the Rambam, not just because he was Ravid Bal Hasagos, but it is true that it's famous in the Yeshiva world, the Ravid is known as the Ravid Bal Hasagos. What caused him to write the Hasagos is also an interesting question. Of course, the Ravid, as I said before, wrote Hasagos not only in the Rambam, he wrote Hasagos in other Svarim as well. But what caused him to attack the Rambam, or perhaps attack is the improper word, to, you, to write his Hasagos in the Rambam? First of all, we should point out that not all the Hasagos are critiques. Very often, the Ravid even heaps praise upon the Rambam. Sometimes he shows the source of the Rambam, and sometimes he just says, there are other sources, there are other people who disagree with the Rambam. But the, Ram, the Ravid sometimes, occasionally, speaks rather harshly against the Rambam. And, of course, this led to conjecture among scholars, why did the Ravid really write his Svarim? One, his Hasagos. One is because he was upset that the Rambam did not quite quote any sources. The Ravid thought, if the Ram does not quote sources, then you cannot judge accurately the importance of this psak, and you cannot base it solely on the fact that the Rambam quoted this, this source. In general, the Ravid does say this in his introduction to the Sagas, in the very beginning of his Sagas, the Ravid says that the Rambam he thought he'd do something wonderful to improve the world, but it really did not accomplish its purpose. He should have had the sources. There could have been, there's a lot of different uh, suppositions or hasharot, why the Ravid really wrote his comments. Some think that the Ravid really opposed the Rambam. Maybe he opposed his philosophic approach. Maybe he was really, an, uh, an, uh, he wanted to show the Rambam was not the last word of Psak, and therefore he wanted to limit the influence of the Rambam. There are many, many theories why he wrote the Hasagos. But one last point about these Hasagos, the question is, was the Ravid really systematic in writing these Hasagos? Did he go from beginning to the end of the Mishnah Torah and made a comment on every Rambam that he thought important to comment upon? This is important because there are people, it seems to me that Ravavad Yosef is one of them, who thinks that whenever the Ravid did not comment on the Rambam by silence, argumentio excellentio, from the argument from silence, implies that the Ravid disagrees with that particular Rambam. And it seems that, the, that when, the, when Rav Avad Yosef or others look to see which Rishonim held which viewpoint, they would say, well, if the Rambam held it and the Ravid did not say anything, obviously there are two opinions, both the Rambam and the Ravid, that this is true. It seems that the Ravid was not that systematic in his approach, and therefore there are many Rambams that it seems almost inconceivable that the Ravid would agree with. And, as we can prove through really serious scholarship of studying the Ravid and other sources, which I said is a source of a, an unbelievable note by Rev Chaim Salavechik, where you can show a corollary between the Ravid 
in his Svarim, what he really, in Svarim, that either that he wrote or that he was quoted, that we can actually see his opinion on many issues that he did not argue with the Rambam. So it would seem that the Ravid is not systematic, and there are cases where the Ravid certainly would disagree with the Rambam, but he did not make a comment for whatever reason. It does not necessarily mean that there was a systematic system to the Sagas. The uh, Ravid's uh, endeavor and oeuvre is really too great to discuss in such a brief time. Perhaps we got a little taste of the greatness of the Ravid, and as I recommended before, more literature is certainly available for the interested person. Thank you very much, Rev Tavori. Um, of course, uh, Parshat Vayeshev is the parsha where Yosef ends up in uh, in captivity. Uh, fortunately for Yosef, uh, we're talking about 22 years away from his family, but of those 22 years, two years he was in prison. Um, some of the time, about nine years, he was away. He was the second in command in Egypt, and uh, I guess that leaves us another. 11 years, uh, where he was a servant in Potiphar's house, a successful servant, certainly not in the conditions of Jonathan Pollard, who's 23 years been in prison. Um, and nonetheless, he was sold away from his family, and that was not an easy ordeal to go to. And he is the quintessential captive in biblical and 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 in the eyes of Judaism throughout the generations, and we say uh, in our slichot, Misha anali Yosef beveta asurim huya aneinu, and uh, and we pray that Misha anali Yosef beveta asurim huya ane le Jonathan Pollard, le Gilad Shalit, to Goldwasser and Regev, to Katz, Feldman, Chever, Ronarad, Baumol. And just like God found a solution for um, Yosef, he should find a solution for all these people and all their families, and that we should take the right steps um, to making uh, a solution for these people. Whatever is in our hands to do, we should do. And if nothing else... Maybe the most powerful thing, we should all say a tefillah every day and every tefillah for these people. Shabbat shalom. Misha Nal Yosef Bevet HaSurim Huya Aneinu.